join today's podcast in progress with Steve in the middle of a story about Dean Graziosi. Well, go ahead with your story. Go ahead with the rest of my story. So anyways, yeah. Dean, when he was, I'm, I'm trying to remember, but in his late teens, he had a, a snowmobile and somehow he got in the idea in his head that he wanted to race in and compete in this snowmobile sprint that was like 500 yards long. And so what he did was, and he, his father's mechanic, he was a mechanic. And so what he did was he actually started doing some things to tweak his, his uh, snowmobile. And so he had a friend stand whatever, 200 or 500 yards out, and he would just drive it as fast as he could and time it. And then he would make some tweaks and he would do it again. Well, that helped a little bit, but then he called everybody in his community that repaired or built snowmobiles. I think it was, I don't think it was motorcycle. Yeah, I'm sure it was snowmobiles. Built or, or repaired snowmobiles and basically called them all and said, you know, here's what I've been doing. I'm trying to find ways to get, tweak my snowmobile to get more speed so that I can, you know, compete in this type of race. And mechanics all said, well, you know, you do this. And so he said, well, I've already tried that. And so after talking to like 10 to 20 people who were mechanics, they gave him all these tiny little things. He would try each time he would try that one thing, make that one change and see how that impacted the speed. And then the next day he would make another change and see how that also impacted. If it helped it, he kept it and then added another one. And so in any case, he got to a point where he had, I think his machine was a 350. And those races go in uh, horsepower uh, categories or CC categories, I guess. Uh, so it would be a 350. He'd be in the 350 class. And then there's a 450 and a 550 class. And uh, so in his regional area, um, you know, and he had a lot of people there seeing him in all the, you know, this kid in grubby shirts with this used motor or snowmobile. <clears throat> it was all beat up competing against these guys with brand new snowmobiles. And he ended up winning the 350 and the 450 open heats in his region, wow. went to the nationals and ended up winning the 350 and 450, I think, or maybe he came in second. Anyways, he was competing against major brands that had fancy outfits, had the best technology and everything. And, and part of what he also <laughs> did, he just practiced starting every, you know, at night he would sit in bed and watch, you know, envision the lights going on and, and start working on his reflexes over and over and over again. But it's a great story. If you listen to, uh, if you listen to him, tell it on his, uh, in his book, um, Gideon, What's we're talking that? about Dean Graziosi and he has, He's written a few books, but the one that I was referring to is a story that was in the Underdog Advantage audio cassette. And uh, it was just, but you know, when somebody does that at 18, 19 years old, I mean, they're destined for success. I mean, they- Yeah, that's a lot of dedication. Obstacles, that's just focused on a goal, pursuing it, regardless of what the naysayers are saying. And- yeah. And going after it, but um, but it, it's a good, like I told you, John. I've gone through and listened to about 
maybe a third or half of the book. And it's really a good book. It's from the standpoint of getting people to think about the underdogs really have an advantage because people don't see them coming. Good morning. Uh, Sorry, I'm a little bit slurred, a little bit late. I got a sore throat, so struggling a little bit, almost three days now. I hope it it doesn't get into anything else. But yeah, I bought the book, The Underdog Advantage. I've not finished reading it, but I think I've read three or four chapters. And uh, just haven't pushed through. But once I got to the point where I heard you, even before you mentioned it, I knew you were talking about him. So, uh, I like him. He's, He's the scrappy guy that gets it done. He finds a way to get it done. I don't think I had ever even heard of him until last year. I th- his his face looked vaguely familiar when I first saw him on one of his infomercials. And I heard him talking about how, oh, you've probably seen me a million times before because he used to do infomercials way back in the day. Right. And I'm sitting there watching thinking, you look familiar, but I can't for the life of me figure out why you look familiar. And I must have seen him and just not connected the dots with whatever it was that he was doing. It was probably real estate stuff back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but you said something about naysayers, and it reminded me there's a um, a video of Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about success. And there's various clips that have been hijacked for different like uh, success motivation compilations. And one of the ones I've heard a bunch of times is, um, don't listen to the naysayers. And he tells a story about how when um, when he became a bodybuilder, bodybuilding was kind of looked on as as weird. It wasn't like weightlifting. I think people respected weightlifters because it was an Olympic event. But bodybuilding, when he got into it in the, the 70s, people just thought they were freaks. And yeah. then people told him he would never be in the movies when he said he wanted to because of his accent. And he goes through this list of all these things that when you hear him, you go, well, that makes sense. Like who would think a guy with a heavy accent like he had would turn into the world's biggest movie star. And one after another, these examples that he gave, he had skinny calves when he first started bodybuilding and he knew that was a weakness. And everybody said, Oh, calves are genetic. No matter what you do, if they're skinny, there's nothing you can do about it. And he said, okay, you watch, you wait. Um, We kind of Gideon, we kind of, got on that path because I, I asked Steve, um, did you have anything in particular that you wanted to talk about on today's show? I thought as a, uh, a just in case, I just grabbed some of my books off my, out of my bookcase that have particular things in them that, that I've found interesting and are relevant to the ramp stuff. Um, okay. We're recording already, so we can just edit, start whenever we want to start. Um, but I was just thinking the book's, might be a good place to start, um, maybe starting with yours, Gideon, since you actually have oh. one. <laughs> if you read. Uh, a very interesting book I should mention before we forget, especially because we're talking about the power of the underdog. And in essence, we are all underdogs in some ways. We, I don't think any one of us was born with a silver spoon. It's uh, the book, <coughs> David and Goliath. Oh, is that the Malcolm Gladwell? Malcolm Gladwell. What's incredible David and Goliath. Incredible David. examples of many, many uh, cases of underdogs. Some of them documented almost to a scientific level. He went back to Israeli 
Air Force, uh, Israeli Army, to ask them to, 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 to recast a scene similar to David and Goliath, went back to the spot where they, were, they, 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 they met historically to fight. And it, they studied how much faster the velocity of, of a bullet that leaves, of a stone that leaves the sleep. And then uh, how medical records have shown that maybe Goliath wasn't actually a hero, uh, a, a giant that much. He was suffering from a sudden uh, medical condition called, um, is it uh, Achimedes a, a, a or whatever, but it, it's overgrowth and it, it hinders sight. That's why David uh, Goliath was saying, come to me. I'm going to shred you apart and give you to the birds. Like, how could he be asking David to come to me? He should have seen him. Anyway, then he diverts from there to say, but giants are often not giants. They started to examine many, many examples that show that giants are certainly not giants and that the underdogs possess a unique advantage of fighting. It goes into talking about the foundation of Ikea. Ikea talks about uh, a team in, the, in, the, in the, the Bay Area that was coached by an Indian immigrant. And this Indian immigrant has no basketball uh, uh, experience at all. He's just a tech executive whose daughter takes interest in uh, playing basketball. And he starts going out there and coaching them. And this team of girls, mostly children of immigrants who have no understanding of basketball before coming to America, they start to play. And their style of play is very aggressive. It's very different from anything that the more strategic teams here play. And they disrupt everybody, everybody, until they go up to almost like, uh, I don't know if it's state finals or something. They, they didn't win. But just the fact that they could take down some of the biggest teams along the way was like, what are they doing? They were playing full court press and so on. So that's another example that I remember from there. And then I think there's one about um, Lawrence of uh, Arabia, how military uh, conquest could sometimes very often favor the underdog, not the, not the most powerful nations. With countless examples and it's not one of my best books from Malcolm, but clearly talking about this advantage, uh, the underdog advantage, it, it, it definitely is something worth checking. I may have to go back and reread it. You just triggered two things from what you were talking about. Um, there's a guy <clears throat> named Israel Adesanya. They used to, all the announcers used to pronounce it Adesanya because they didn't, they didn't know him. They didn't know how to pronounce it. Then he became the champion in his weight class. He's a UFC fighter. He became the champion in his weight class. Now, of course, they learned how to pronounce it properly. But he was talking about how um, once he became the champion and he started making money, he's from uh, Nigeria originally, although he, he lives in uh, New Zealand. But he was talking about how he went back um, to his hometown and how there's all these kids there that have, like, it's a very poor area. And the... They're, they have a lot of natural athletic ability, but they don't have a lot of coaches, a lot of facilities and equipment and all that stuff. So he wants to build like a bunch of gyms there and teach them. But he was talking about how that that is going to be the hotbed. Like you're going to be seeing tons of fighters now, professional mm -hmm. fighters coming out of Nigeria because him and there's another guy that became a champion who's also Nigerian. And they're both going back and putting money back into the communities. And he's like, 
when you combine their work ethic and their culture and all these different things, and then they actually have the facilities and the coaching and, and some mm -hmm. support, he's like, they're going to take over everything because the, the culture there, it's a, a very, he was just talking about like the work ethic mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. that people there just, they have no problem working long hours and it, it's just a, a part of the culture mm -hmm. there. The mm -hmm. other thing that triggered for me when you were talking about the David and Goliath thing, there's a book called Anti-Fragility, which I, I haven't read it yet, but I've, I've skimmed through uh, some of it, some of the ebook. The whole concept of anti-fragility is, um, it's kind of like resilience, next level of resiliency. So resiliency, typically people would define it as bouncing back from some negative circumstance. Right. Basically bouncing back to your, your previous state after you've been knocked down, for example. The concept of anti-fragility is when you encounter some type of an obstacle or a hardship, you don't just bounce back just as strong. You actually bounce back stronger. And he talks in the book about examples like um, insurgents, like ISIS. The way that they structure the cells in these like terrorist organizations they actually get stronger when like western military strategies are used on them and it has to do with the way their whole system is designed i haven't read mm -hmm. enough of it to have a deep understanding of it but i was just fascinated by the idea that you're not bouncing back to where you were before it's even better and they're actually looking at scientists and engineers are looking at ways of designing anti-fragility into different things mm -hmm. so that mm. they actually get stronger when they run into some kind of a, a yeah. challenge or a difficulty. It's That's a true. totally different paradigm for me. Uh, I, that, that is powerful because um, before coming to U.S., I did, uh, of course, I was a firefighter. When I left firefighting, I went into two fields. I went into emergency management to get certified and also did business continuity planning. But uh, for some reason, even after I got certified in business continuity, I wasn't very fascinated by some portions of it, but I still keep some of the knowledge of it, which means in this design of uh, backup data systems, now they've designed them in such a way that you could knock out all of US completely, but there will still be, you still have access to your backup site where is it located? It's located in a very safe center in Singapore, or it's located somewhere in China or somewhere in another country that's completely cut off from any geophysical uh, activity that could happen where it's an earthquake, an eruption, and they have specific number of hours that are mandated by federal authorities that they must be able to switch things to another site. Now, so far, They've been able to do what they call mirroring, means everything, any document that is safe here, you also save on the side, other side. Mm -hmm. Now, they've not completely come to a point whereby they are 100%, but they are very, very close. So they dis design dispersed systems yeah, so I that will allow for backups to come up within a certain amount of hours. Banks, for example, when the 2003 Northeast blackout <coughs> happened, mm -hmm. it was a big uh, push. There was a big push for not. Eastern banks, which are basically some of the biggest in the world, to have offsites that are far, far away from any shocks that may happen on the Northeast. But the final thing that I also learned from there was that uh, these systems were trying to replicate what 
like Al-Qaeda and so on have already been using. You could, you could kill one of the big guys, doesn't matter. It's another cell somewhere else that comes up. And you could destroy that guy. They, they just, they kind of almost like, um, yeah, they, but the, 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 the toughest industry that I studied, which I wrote a, a paper about when I was getting certified in emergency management was one that I actually worked on as a firefighter. There's an offshore island in Singapore, which is even smaller than the entire country, whereby they grow ornamental fish. Ornamental fish, you could see a tiny little fish like this, but it costs $22,000. And oh, Singapore yeah. is the highest exporter of ornamental fish in the world. It's a $308 billion industry that wow. a small country like that eyes it and takes advantage of it because big countries don't care about that. But right. being a small country with 600 square miles, they have propagated hundreds of thousands of ornamental fish farms all over the place. But there was one that had a military installation and ornamental fish farms, which I had to write the emergency plan to cover that place. Guess what? Their tolerance for downtime, that fragility for them, they cannot go down for more than four minutes. Holy cow. That's... Because, okay, for most banks is four hours. They cannot go down for more than four minutes because if they go down for more than four minutes, they're going to be losing hundreds of millions of dollars. So when I, when I discovered that in my paper, I was like, oh my goodness, this is a fascinating uh, 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 outcome or uh, and a fascinating factoid that I didn't even know before going in. And yet they have generators, they have everything, but their response would be on that island, people have to come from mainland. My station would be, was the main station that would come from mainland to go fight fires there if there's any fire. Now they had to make sure that they replicated some other small thing there so that before the bigger stations come from mainland Singapore, these guys could, could be back up and running. So it was quite interesting, but yeah, fragility. If we think through situations very well, we can always find a way to overcome fragility. I think the only firsthand experience or knowledge I had of that level of backup was when I worked at Royal Caribbean Cruises, um, I did the budgets for, for several different departments. One of them was reservations. And I found out when we were working on their budget that they have an entire remote reservation center in Chicago. So Royal Caribbean Cruises is based in the port of Miami in Florida, but they had an entire, like a duplicate, like a mirror site that had mm -hmm. all the IT backed up mm -hmm. and an entire res reservation center. Cause to mm -hmm. your point, if they can't take a call to take a reservation, that's no revenue coming in. And then obviously mm -hmm. IT supporting everything else. But mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. found that fascinating, um, the degree to which they took that. Yes. Um, why don't we, why don't we start with the whole idea that you had Gideon, the three guys in a car, talk a little bit about for the viewers here that don't really know us how we met and then maybe backtrack and each one of us kind of tell a little bit of our story, how we got to be trainers in the first place, or we could do it in any order. It doesn't matter to me. I, I thought that might be a good, good thing to start with. What do you think? Oh, I think it sounds, sounds pretty good. Uh, I could give you my own personal retake on that. Um, it, it, it is like, you can't, you can't really tell when you're going to meet fascinating people. That, that's how I see it. You never know when you're going to meet fascinating people who are just as kind, just as warm-hearted, just as cordial, just as friendly 
as you have ever seen anywhere. And so that's how I think uh, getting to Kansas was like for, for me. Uh, I was coming not from my house. I was coming from a wedding, <laughs> my sister-in-law in, in uh, Maryland. So I was kind of a little bit off pitch. When you fly out, not from your own house, you're flying out from somewhere else where you've been at a wedding, you, maybe you got drunk, uh, <laughs> you, you slept, they, they didn't want you to sleep in a the hotel, they say that, oh, African people Did must you get sleep. drunk, Sorry? <laughs> Did you get drunk? <laughs> uh, uh, that's why I say maybe. <laughs> but <laughs> the point was, they said, hey, we, we are immediate family to the bride. While the bride and the groom should be somewhere else, we should then stay home so we can tell jokes and drink all night long, sleep on the couch. And I'm the guy to catch a flight early in the morning. Where are you going to? I'm going to Kansas. So I'm a little bit blurry. I don't know what to do, but and I check into a really shabby hotel. Oh, not the best. And the next morning at a skill path, uh, I wasn't as sharp as I should be. And I didn't necessarily take the time to reserve a car or something. So I was going to walk back. But then I realized you guys were like, hey, you're probably heading my, the same direction with me. I said, could you give me a ride? He said, hey, jump in, jump in, let's go. You, you made it so comfortable for me. So when I jumped into that car, I didn't know it was a Ford Focus. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I would have said no. <laughs> of course, I was delighted. I said, jump in, let's go. And I, then I jumped in. Then that's when the conversation really started. Well, yes, we've so, been discussing all day long, but it was very formal stuff, very formal. Uh, get into this, get into line, get out of line, uh, go sit in the front of the camera, go sit and talk to, Jay, uh, to, to Gary, uh, to the other gentleman. And one of them was a little bit stoic, that he made you feel a little bit... So yes, anyway, yeah. by the time we were returning to the hotel, and you guys gave me the ride in your world-famous Fort Focus, <laughs> very enlightening to know that you guys were warm-hearted, just like I am usually, I hope. And then the conversation really uh, boiled into something that has turned into a, a, a friendship. And now, guess what? <laughs> we got a, a, a podcast called Three Guys in a Fort Focus. To me, <laughs> so it, it sums up, you never know who you're going to meet in a rental car somewhere in the heartlands of Kansas. So let's give a little context to why we were all in Kansas, right? Steve, do you maybe want to? to talk a little bit about because because you and I actually met before we went there but it was just that brief interaction when we were watching Mike Maddie I think was his last name yes it was yeah so we had I think all of us kind of went through a, a similar process before we got together and that was uh, we had a particular vendor that we were working with and part of that vendor's process was before you can be a certified trainer for the vendor, you needed to, first of all, send in a videotape of yourself. And then we had to sit on a webinar to hear about the process and hear about what we'd be expected to do and, and what their expectations for us would be. And they also said, you know, to get a sense of what it's like to be a trainer, go out and visit a couple of different uh, trainers out there doing it in your local community so you can see what that training organization was all about and the expectation that they had to do one of the one of the expectations as you both know was sales was a big part of what this company did and they shipped out books to locations and and the trainers actually had to talk about those books and to sell them as well as the online training resources that the company had so as 
Uh, I signed up for a particular class here in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I live. And it just so happened that it was with Mike Matta and it happened to be the same day that John signed up for. So John and I got a chance to meet each other and sit in the back of a room and watch really a phenomenal trainer go through his, his training course and got a chance to observe that. But we also got a chance to learn from each other about our own backgrounds. And we went to lunch and, and had a nice time uh, getting to know each other and also uh, learning a little bit about our expectations and what we'd be expected to do. And then uh, from there, we all transitioned into going to Kansas, Kansas City, Missouri, or was it Kansas City, Kansas? I think it was Missouri. Kansas City, Kansas. Kansas City, Kansas. Mm -hmm. um, so we all flew into Kansas City and there we went through about three days of an onboarding process where they had us standing up in front of the class. The and, giving basically. <laughs> and John and I, because we knew each other, we had made a connection ahead of time and we were in the same hotel. And, and so, um, and John had gotten the car. And so it, it allowed us to both kind of go there together with somebody that we knew and also, uh, to be able to talk both offline and, uh, and be a part of the class at the, at the same time. Quick, quick aside on where we met, uh, the, the hotel where Mike was doing his training. Mm -hmm. I remember it wasn't five minutes into the conversation with Mike. I thought this guy is unique because when I got there, he had, I think three or four bowls of oatmeal four four bowls of oatmeal. And he started telling us about how he was a marathon runner. And opium? Oatmeal. Oatmeal. No oatmeal. No, no, no. Oatmeal. That would get you guys into trouble. I would hold this up, but it's empty. I had some oatmeal this, this morning. Yeah, oatmeal, all different animals. Thank God it's not oatmeal because we all be in trouble. <laughs> but he was, one of the things that I, I, I got from watching him, which I still to this day don't think I do as well as, as he, nearly as well as he did. He did a great job of selling that company's books and, and CDs and everything without it feeling like he was selling. I thought he was really, really good at just, he had it peppered into his presentation. You know, he would talk about something. And at the end, it was just like this seamless, smooth transition to letting people know, hey, there's, you know, we've got all kinds of stuff in the back of the room. We've got this and this. And he went through some of it. I felt like I never, maybe it's just I didn't get enough practice, but I don't feel like I ever got as smooth as he was. Um, so, Gideon, I, I'm curious to, to hear your story of how you got into training in the first place, because all three of us come from very different backgrounds. None of us went to school to become a professional trainer or speaker. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, your, whatever your first career was. And I'm curious, mm -hmm. whatever that first career was, is that something that you had wanted to do from when you were a kid? Or how did that come about? And then walk us through to how you got to being a trainer. Okay. Um, I'll take you way back to mid-90s, around 95, 96. So at my former, uh, at my alma mater in Cameroon, I founded a group that is still in existence to now. It's a, a, a chapter of an international student organization 
that is called International Association of Students in Economics and Management. Founded way back in 1948, after the Second World War in Europe, to bring people of all backgrounds together to learn different cultures so that there should never be a situation whereby people have to fight again. Because if you get to know somebody, you trust them. So I was a nosy reporter before I went to college. But when I stumbled on those guys, I said, okay, I made a note of it. So when I got to college, I told my friends, hey, let's start, let's start the chapter of this group here. They look cool. Let's start it. My friends never heard about it. But thank goodness I have very good friends. They came around me. We went through so many struggles, so many struggles, but found, founded a chapter of that group. And it's still there till today. It sends students to hundreds of countries around the, around the world. So in 1995, I was selected for a national training seminar conference in Switzerland. 95, if you know, I was a wretched, I was as poor as anything can get. I was selling condoms to be able to just go to school. So I was condoms? really, I was really poor. Yes, I was get, I was get free condoms from the school to distribute to my friends, and I distribute when they got tired. Like oh, I don't want this condom thing, get out of here. So I'll take these condoms, I go and sell them. But long story short, ninety-five, I was selected to go to Switzerland to go for an international uh, training seminar there to become a national trainer for that organization. But I okay. could not afford to go. I couldn't afford it. And some of my friends played some games. I think one of them went. I was frustrated, but I just, a seed of training had been sold in my mind. And I admired these guys. I would see them come from Switzerland, from Australia, from Denmark. They, they look fascinating in front of people, hundreds of people. And I thought, man, I could, be, I could be one of those. But I could not make that dream happen. So I went back to my regular job after I finished college, worked so hard, and ended up going to Singapore to study IT. IT didn't work out, but I went to work for the government as a firefighter. So I did. And why, uh, why Singapore? That's the only place I could afford. Okay. I could not even stand in front of the U.S. Embassy. It was way too expensive. You had to come from a special family because you need a warranty of about 16 million. If, you're, if you want to leave from Cameroon and come to America, your family has 16 million in an Holy account cow. to show that you can afford to live here as a student. So from a home that my mom was a widow, making about a dollar a, a month, there's no way that I could even think about that. So all that I worked in one year after college, I saved it. I didn't even have even a couch in my room. I saved all that money with the hope of, let me get the hell out of here. So I ended up going to South Africa, working two years, saved more than went to Singapore. But when I went to Singapore, Singapore was very open. They were open to like, if you're a foreigner, you have a degree, we can hire you to work in some industries. I was hired to work as a firefighter, went through nine months training and came out, went down fighting fires. I did very fairly well as a firefighter. But then after two years at the station, you could get posted out to go work in any of the divisions. So you get to contribute. What do you want to be posted out to do? Oh, I kind of like the fact that when I was uh, teaching, people paid attention. Whether they were paying attention because of my face is different, because of my accent, whatever. But I just like the fact that they paid attention. So I opted to go into training. So I was sent back to the academy where I was trained for nine months with police officers and all these guys. And I went through an adult training program, got certified to be a senior instructor. That was where the seat of real training got sold. Way, 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 way back in 2002. So I did that very well, enjoyed it very, very much. 
And I thought, man, I'm helping these people do so well. Why don't you go do it for myself? So by the time I quit my job, I was determined that I was going to find a way to become a trainer. That's how I found out my first company in 2004 in Singapore. And it went on to be very, very, first year was miserable, miserable. And they told me, you're going to fail. There are no people out here that look like you. You're going to fail. But let it be recorded. By the second year, I was making more than I've ever made in all my life. I, I mean, I was making like five times what I'm making now from a small training company, training companies on emergency management and crisis management. So that's how I got into training. By the time I came here, I'd already been training for a couple of years in Asia, coming to Canada and so on. But my, my story is, I can't say that I made a determination at childhood I would become a trainer. I became a trainer just because I was like, okay, what else am I, what else fascinates me? What else can I, can I be good at? And that's how I got into training and the rest is history, as I say. Interesting. So you actually do have, sir, I, I'll let Steve talk about his experience, but when I got into training, I had, I had no formal training in how to be a trainer. I had trained people, not, mm. not in formal settings, um, but no, no classes to speak mm. of. So Steve, let's hear your, uh, your, how I got here story. And, so, and if you, and if you could tell us if, if it does or does not tie in at all to like what you wanted to be when you were a kid, as I'm always curious about that. Um, you know, that's, that is always such an interesting question. And, and I think that, uh, from a, uh, uh, from childhood, I really had, you know, knew, knew that I had, um, I, like we all do, you know, you've got something special inside of you, you know, that you've got some things that you know, you can do. Um, but it was really vague for me. And so I, I did what a lot of kids did in, in my area and probably in your area. And that is, you know, I want to be a professional athlete of some kind, you know, so focus on whatever athletic sport I was focusing on. And, and where I lived, it was typically the, uh, the three sports of football, basketball, and baseball. I I stayed away from the football piece of it, um, not for any great reason. I did did it younger, but then I didn't pursue that as I got older. Um, pursued more baseball and basketball. But in any case, you know, got to a certain level of success, but never went to college for any of those sports. Um, decided to be more focused on academics. So what you wanted to be had nothing to do with training, but I really appreciated coaches as I went through. And I don't know if you folks have had, you two have had experiences with coaches, but coaches and teachers have a lot in common, but coaches are a little bit more gruff under the collar in many cases, <laughs> because they've got to force you to take some action where teachers have to force you to listen. And um, so learned a lot from coaches, but I didn't connect the dots of what a coach really did until I got older. Um, when I was in uh, in college, I had I coached uh, my brother and some of his friends in a uh, uh, youth basketball league. And two years prior, the same team of these kids won the championship. And I got to coach them for something like 10 games, all right? And our record was 0 and 10. <laughs> my, and so the kids two years ago won the championship with my record it was 0 and 10. what was the difference it was the same kids 
but it was a significantly for me it was more about i learned that i was a spectator instead of a coach when the games were going on so rather than really having any strategy or having a, a thought of i just want to let these kids play and that's all they did was play there was not a lot of teamwork there was no strategy we did practice and we did you know they'd had some uh, good work ethic and we did a lot of drills and things but it never came together because just my inexperience did not really click and i didn't realize i wasn't coaching until after the fact you know i don't know if you guys have ever experienced that but when you're younger it's like you know in my first manager job i just told people what to do i never asked them to do anything i said john do this gideon i need to do this um it didn't go over real well so it was one of those learning situations in my first managerial position early in my career where I learned very quickly that even though the book says your job as a manager is to get things done through your people, telling them what to do isn't the way to get it done. So in any case, um, a long answer to your question, John, about was training what I was hoping to do. No, but when I went through and got into insurance and financial services, I learned that um, I enjoyed training new staff people and agencies that I was working with. I enjoyed having meetings where I was doing some type of uh, training and, and motivating, inspiring, and training kind of all wrapped together. And then um, got a chance to go to the home office of the company I was working with. And when I went to that home office, it was in a project management type role, was there for just a year before they did a little reorganization and I was kicked out of there. And my first call was to their training organization in the same city and uh, <laughs> fortunately got hired in the training organization because in, the, in my mind, I had experienced training from that organization or going there initially go through their training. And I just thought, man, it is such a great gig to be one of those trainers. I hope I get a chance to do that in my career. And so I had a chance to do that. And that was in 2006. And so I formally became a trainer in 2006. And as Gideon said, the, the rest is kind of history. So I'm going to transition over to you, John. And, and I know you also had somewhat of a financial background in history. Uh, tell us about your road to, to training. Absolutely. Well, when I, when I talk to people about this, I always refer to it as getting into training uh, more or less through the back door. Um, I never mm -hmm. set out to be a trainer. Uh, someone... I think it was in 2011, I think it was. Um, someone was on, it's a guy that was involved in the planning for these conferences that were put on by this organization called the American Strategic Management Institute, which I don't know if it exists anymore. I think it became a part of some other uh, larger group. Um, but all they did, they were a think tank and training organization, and they put on conferences all over the country on all types of different topics. And this guy was working on finding speakers or trainers for this conference that was specifically on budgeting and forecasting. So he went on LinkedIn and just did a keyword search and my whole background up to that time was in budgeting and forecasting. So he sent me a message and said, he introduced himself and said, hey, would you be interested in speaking at this conference? And my first reaction was, how does this work? What do you mean like speaking at a conference? I've never done that before. And I literally just said, well, 
it sounds interesting, but how does this work? And he basically said, um, we want you to speak for an hour on this topic. And he, he kind of gave me some of the details of the topic and we'll pay for all your expenses and uh, we'll pay you a $2,000 honorarium. So that was the first time I'd ever heard the term honorarium. And I immediately mm -hmm. said, wait a second, I'm just going to talk for an hour. You're going to pay me two grand and pay all my expenses. Like, where do I sign? Like how fast can we get this thing done? Um, and I was so nervous in giving that presentation. Um, I actually recruited a friend of mine to help me practice and, and go through everything and kind of, uh, review my PowerPoints and all that stuff. Cause I was so nervous about it. Long story short, that one went well. They asked me to do some other ones. So I don't remember how many I did for them, but probably close to a dozen over the course of a, a couple of years, they would have, you know, every few months or so. Um, and I kind of got bit by the bug with that. And I started to think this kind of just came to me. I didn't, I didn't go looking for it. And I certainly wasn't doing enough of them that I could make a living doing it. But I thought, what if I actually marketed myself and proactively tried to get jobs doing that instead of just taking whatever this one organization threw my way? And so I thought, what's the, what's the low-hanging fruit? For me, my background prior to that was finance and accounting. And there are all of these associations that provide training for finance and accounting people. So why don't I start there? And so that's where I started with, uh, there's another organization. So one of the sponsors, the, the lead sponsor of, of pretty much all of those conferences that I was speaking at was a company called, it's not Anaplan. They've changed the name now. Anyway, it was a, a forecasting software company. And so they were the, the name sponsor, um, of all of these events. And I got to know their VP of marketing. And he said, you know, you ought to talk to somebody at uh, the association for financial professionals. I said, what is that? I'd never heard of it. I'd been an accountant for years. So he introduced me to someone there and I, I ended up getting some business from them. And it just kind of over time at that time, I, my full-time thing was doing finance consulting for small businesses. And over time, I started doing more training and less of the consulting work. And now I'll pretty much do consulting if somebody knocks on my door and wants to throw money at me. But I don't, I don't proactively market myself for the financial consulting work anymore. I, I just market myself for training. Um, interestingly, what I asked you guys about, like, if it tied in at all with what you wanted to do when you were a kid, nothing I'm doing now has anything to do with anything I thought I'd be doing as a kid. I never thought about athletics. I was always a runt. I was like the smallest kid in every class I was ever in. So I never had that idea of being a professional athlete. Um, I thought for the longest time when I was a kid that I wanted to be a soldier because my dad was a soldier. He's in the army for 30 years. Mm -hmm. But as I got to high school, I started thinking, I think I want to own my own business. Mind you, I had no idea what the hell that entailed or meant, <laughs> but I started to, um, see and hear stories about people who had started their own businesses and been successful. Um, and when I, I don't remember what year it was, but it was one of my years in high school. I completely changed what I wanted to be just from reading this one book. It's a book called will by G Gordon Liddy. Um, 
most people who are listening to this probably have never heard of him. Jew. G. Gordon Liddy was an FBI agent, um, and he was in the FBI during Richard Nixon's um, uh, administration. And he got all wrapped up in that whole Watergate scandal that ended in Richard Nixon's impeachment. He was the only person involved with all of those trials that went on that actually ended up going to jail. Um, and he wrote an autobiography called Will. And I remember the things that stuck out in that book were it seemed really cool to be an FBI agent. Um, he seemed like a badass dude. And the stuff that FBI agents did sounded like stuff you see in, in movies. It sounded really cool. So I thought, I want to be a G-man. I want to be an FBI agent. And when I went to college, I actually had zero plan for how I would do that. It, it kind of was one of those things that kind of came and went in my mind because as I got older, I started to realize that that's a very difficult job and it's very challenging to even get accepted into the FBI training program. And it kind of intimidated me. So I kind of put it on a back burner and I kind of didn't think about it for a while. And then when I became a junior in college, as I was an accounting major, and I actually picked accounting only because I thought I want to have my own business someday. And learning accounting certainly seems like something I'd want to know if I ran my own business. And then I, I found out accounting is typically thought of as the hardest uh, degree within the business school, just in terms of the technical aspects of it. So I thought, well, I'll start out in accounting. And if I can't hack it, maybe I'll switch to finance or something like that. But let me try the one that at least I think is the hardest. And it turned out, I found out in my junior year that the FBI has a white collar crime division and they very heavily recruit CPAs. And I found that out because the uh, Accounting Honor Society had meetings where they would have recruiters come in and they talk about the accounting profession and their company and this and that. One of the recruiters was an FBI agent from Miami, which is where I grew up. And when I saw that guy speaking and saying, we need people like you, we need CPAs. And he talked about the white collar crime division. I thought, finally, I did something right. I picked the right <laughs> major, even though that, that wasn't why. I just lucked out. And then come to find out right before graduation, there was a federal hiring freeze. And the FBI was not hiring any new agents. So I ended up getting a job in a CPA firm and worked in accounting for a while and then various finance jobs. And every time I think back in hindsight, I think, thank God for that hiring freeze. Because when I hear stories, <laughs> I listen to a lot of podcasts with a lot of guys who are ex-military and law enforcement. And when I hear some of their stories, I think, I, I don't know that I was wired to have a job where I carried a gun and a badge for a living. I, I think it takes a certain special kind of person to do that kind of work well. I don't know that I'm wired that way. Who knows? Maybe, maybe it would have worked out fine. But in hindsight, I think that probably wasn't um, a good fit for me. Um, so that's kind of a long, long story of how I got into where, where I am now, I guess. Very fascinating origin stories. These, 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 these are fascinating because they say <coughs> until you listen to someone, you can never tell their origin story. 
And if you listen to them, no matter what, you like them. If you listen to, I think it was um, <coughs> um, Mr. Rogers that said, uh, if you, there's nobody that you wouldn't like if you get to listen to the origin story. So yes, I would like, love you guys very much, but listening to your origin story, it just make you bloom like, like it's unbelievable. And I couldn't see all of that, even though we've interacted for a long time. You know, this is and, one of the things that motivated me to think about uh, having some type of a, a podcast is I'm just a naturally curious person, but I thought a, a show like this where we could interview people and hear their stories, it's the kind of stuff I'd like to do over a beer or a cup of coffee or something, you know, anyway. And, you know, we just happen to sort of stick to our, our, our roughly anyway, our ramp acronym uh, when we talk to people. Um, but Steve, you were the one that actually created the ra the ramp acronym. Can you share with us a little about, bit about how you arrived at those four specific things that are the, the structure of ramp? Because every time since we've kind of settled on focusing on that, I feel like almost anything I can think of can fit into that ramp structure if you just are thinking about it the right way. So how did that yeah, the, how did that the genius of Steve. <laughs> and just like uh, the genius of all of us, it is oftentimes the result of an accident. Um, so it's, you know, one of those situations where um, just to give you kind of a little bit of background, it was at the end of February, might have been early March, COVID had just COVID-19 had just hit. And uh, so I have been a member of Toastmasters for now about uh, seven or eight years. And I had a speech that I had signed up to give in the next coming weeks. And so I wanted to give a speech on how do we help people really get focused on what they can do instead of focusing on worrying about, you know, you're stuck in your house and you can't, uh, you can't drive into work and they're closing things down and um, there's a virus going out um, that, you know, is having a big impact on both businesses and people and communities and air travel and all that kind of stuff. So travel shut down my business from a traveling to train standpoint, training out and face to face just totally shut down. And so I started thinking about what are the components that if I want to get somebody motivated, enthused and, and focus on what you can do and not what you can't do, what do I need, really need to tell these folks about what they can do? And it kind of goes to some of the other things that I know you two have talked about. And I know, John, you've talked about resilience, for example, and, and some of those other things. But as I was going through, I was listing the things that I thought really are important. You know, you got to have goals was one of them. You know, you got to have habits. Um, mindset is so critical, important. And I had just heard a podcast on somebody talking about how, you know, this is not the time. This is a time to make sure you focus on those priorities, like your family, for example, making sure that your family is an important component of it. And I thought, you know, priorities and purpose kind of blend together. So as I was doodling with that concept, um, I think the a originally was actions and we changed that to um achievements and goals because it was really much more um much more applicable to to the four components 
so in any case, uh, it started as a uh, just a seven minute Toastmaster speech, laid it, laid it out in that speech. And part of the feedback I got from the person that was giving me feedback was simply to say, you know, Steve, that is something that I think you ought to share in a lot of different areas. And I think you ought to post it on LinkedIn and post it on Facebook and, and post it elsewhere. And so I wrote up an article that I posted on uh, LinkedIn. And, and then John, you and I started talking about it as far as getting together and, and doing some cooperative training together. And as you and I talked about it, it became better because we added the, uh, the A wasn't really fitting. And so we changed that to achievements and goals. And, um, and that's how the whole kind of component came about. Um, it, it's really so interesting because um, once that fell into place, it really kind of has, like you talked about, John, I mean, it's really kind of solidified that um, the acronym just happens to be four components of kind of core success principles. And, uh, and I think important part of that. I think it's lucky in a way too that ramp kind of lends itself to lots of different ways that, that we can play off of that, like the name of the podcast, right? The on ramp to success. Um, some of the, the marketing that, that we've done with the Facebook group or the webinar we talked about, uh, ramp up your life. It just kind of lends itself, I think, to a lot of different things. Um, One of the things I do appreciate about a podcast is I think it, at least for me, it's easier for me to call somebody up or send somebody a note and say, Hey, I'd love for you to be on my podcast. than it is to say, Hey, can we have some coffee or can we, uh, can I have a conversation with you? People love, and maybe it's my own, it's, it is certainly my own self-talk, but it is from an ease standpoint, I can, I feel much more comfortable and much more, uh, it just straightforward to get somebody on the podcast than just to, uh, to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them. And it adds more structure that I think is more valuable than just having that one-on-one -on -one conversation. Another thing that yeah. I've noticed too is it seems, and I heard somebody talk about this last week in one of my networking groups, it seems like there's a, an almost unspoken rule of reciprocity that if somebody has Brilliant. you on, on their show, that if you have a show that, that you know, you invite them to be on yours and that's happened mm -hmm. um, with some of the ones that we did. Ver I'm still working on uh, scheduling with Veronica. I guess her business is actually doing really well. So she's she's been pretty busy, but she's got a podcast. Um, and I, I think it's just, it's almost like a, a, a backdoor accidental uh, networking thing. Like we, we didn't design it that way, but I, you come to find out that, hey, that's just kind of how people are when they when they have yeah. one as well. And I'm on, I'm the, on Nicole Greer's podcast. Perhaps uh, later this I, week. When I started out with my business, it was sitting down for coffee with somebody, and that really helped me to grow my business because I could invite literally literally anybody, and they would be happy to sit down. Now I've noticed that it's a bit different here in the U.S., and it's a little harder to get somebody to sit down. So I have to acknowledge that. But I also say maybe podcast sit down is a new coffee. 
uh, new way to get somebody to sit down in a cordial, in a friendly uh, atmosphere, only in the absence of real coffee or in the absence of a drink or lunch. So this makes it even cheaper and more affordable because you can do it from home and still be able to pick the brain of this other intelligent or very achieving or very focused uh, individual that we, we want to learn from and share with, with our, our followers. Well, and thank goodness the technology today makes it so easy. I mean, if I don't know what it took people doing podcasts 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I don't know what was required to do that. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it was as simple as fire up a Zoom call, hit record. Yeah. And I mean, th there's not a whole lot of barriers to entry to, to doing a podcast. Um, That's right. And to speak to the importance of how technology has uh, leveled the playing field, when I went on to this show called the virtual stage, and I'll be inviting that guy to, to come uh, on our podcast here. Guess what they were using? They were using the one I introduced last week, StreamYard. Ah, okay. So they use that and then they curate it. And the beauty is you can have uh, it streamed on LinkedIn. You can have it streamed on Facebook Live while you're do recording it right there. So I, I, I think that uh, as my tongue sort throat improves during the week, I'll check in with you gentlemen. Maybe we can test a 15 minute run just to see how it works. You could tell maybe your origin story and then I can use that, provide some feedback from my storytelling standpoint and maybe you can use that in some way. Uh, especially because when you meet a client, it's important sometimes to, to, to warm them up, to say, hey, how did I get here? You know, clients want to know why, why, you, why are you the recovery accountant? As opposed to, yeah, you're Mr. Sanchez, but that's cool. Why are you a recovering accountant? And that backstory really gives you an opportunity to, to drop in what they call pings into their minds, ankles, that they're unforgettable. So if you do that, you do that well, you, you really stand out from every other person that they've met. So telling that story can be a strategic tool. It's actually a, a, a very, very clear tool, an asset that you can use to be unforgettable. If you do that well, they will never forget you. They can go anywhere else, but they will send you a referral or they, they will come back to you and say, I need to come help. We need to circle back, all three of us, I think, and really tweak. And I'll just speak for myself. I think my introduction, like you mentioned, the recovering accountant, that's kind of part of my introduction when I meet people that they don't know what I do. It seems like there's a universal sentiment in the people that I am in networking groups with that no one seems happy with how they describe what they do to other people. Everyone yeah. seems to feel like whatever they say when someone says, what do you do? Mm -hmm. Even the people that have consciously put time and effort into making it as concise and descriptive as they can, it just seems like this, this thing they're never happy with. I don't know if it's like a, yeah. you know, like a chef cooking a dish where it may <laughs> be delicious, but he always is thinking, Oh, well, it could be better. It could be yeah. better. Um, yeah. And another and, uh, point about that, I think that's important, John, is when you're not happy with it, your delivery is not as good. So even yes. if you've worked on it, if you are unsure about it, if you can't 
totally commit to it, mm -hmm. you're not going to be delivering it as well as you should be able exactly. to. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and delivering it, say, within a minute or two or three. So uh, let me throw the challenge to all of us. And I, and now you also listen to mine. Now, maybe the version you've shared today is a version you want to share when you meet somebody. Maybe it's a different version. But we should have a version that is very tight that we can share within a minute or two when they're sitting down with somebody because we don't want to take too much time. You take too much time, it almost looks like you're self-indulgent. So script it in such a way that you can share it with me within three minutes. I give some feedback, then I share mine with you. You give me some feedback. Did that really stroke your interest? Did that really capture you? Did that really magnetize you? If it did, fine. If it doesn't, then we need to keep tweaking until we get to a place whereby you share it and somebody like, oh my God, I want to learn more from that guy. Well, let's so let's share we can whatever. Do that let's share whatever our current version is here. So when we do future ones where, where maybe we have tweaked it or improved it, we can we can see our own progress. Yeah. Do you, I, I'm pretty confident you have a, a pretty tight intro that you use every time with your story warrior. Yeah. So if I, we just, were networking and I just met you and said, so Gideon, what do you do? Yep. Yep. I, I mean, I, I would really love to, to share that, John, just that since I'm looking at the clock and I want to jump on a meeting. Oh, you got a hard stop. That's I right. I forgot about that. Jump on this meeting, but I would love to. Maybe we can do another one either here on our podcast, or if you have the time to do a, a stream yard with me, I'll be absolutely open to sharing that with you because the version that I shared with you today is a more elaborate one. But the one that yeah. I use when I'm meeting a new client, it, it sort of jumps into milestones from firefighting uh, 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 and then into corporate world and then into the now. So we can look at that. Okay. Mm. Steve, your okay. audio looks like you muted got, yourself there. I, I got to sign, sign off, gentlemen. Let, let me run. All right, man. I don't know how I'm going to do with it, salt throat, but I'll try. <laughs> All right. Try, Good try luck, a lozenge, man. Feel better. We'll talk to you Thank next you. time. Thank talk you very much. Me. Talk to you in the, in the course of the week. I think it'd be helpful, John, for uh, us to be prepared. So I don't want to do it off the cuff anyways. Okay. All right, I'd like that's to prepare cool. for it so at least I can feel comfortable because otherwise I'd feel like I'm just doing it off the cuff. Okay. Well, one thing Anyways. I would like us to get to is, uh, certainly for myself, but I would guess you guys would want to as well, to have it down so that if it comes up, that we don't feel that way because we've practiced it enough. Yeah. But I think, I think we probably all have to get, get the verbiage to where we want it first before we're going to invest the time to say, okay, now, now I'm going to, you know, practice it so that it's, it's reflexive. Cause I, I got the typed out version tighter than it used to be, but I guarantee you, if I wasn't looking at it, I wouldn't say it word for word the same every time. So I'm, I'm still struggling with that niche component and I got to, I keep searching, um, keep getting new ideas. New ideas don't always help. They just expound the problem. And it's, it's almost like I just want to pick one of the four components of ramp and say, that's what I do. I just focus on habits. I just focus on goals. I just focus on mindset, you know. I, I think, think there's enough mindset, folks, so I'm not going to do that. But um, Yeah, I think it's been helpful for me to stick to communication skills and finance and accounting professionals when I'm giving that answer. Um, yeah. And you could always later on say, 
or, or one of the words that people talked about using is, um, I think it was primarily, right. I primarily work with, right? So you're not saying I don't work with anyone else, but this is my, my sweet spot or my specialty. So, yeah. okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up.